You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. Where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. We're your hosts, Caroline. And Jessica. We've been speaking with the authors of the Education Reimagines new paper, Schools Out, and are bringing you a three-part series which explores how we can rethink the meaning, feel, and delivery of learning. In last week's episode, we spoke with Amy Anderson, Executive Director of ReSchool Colorado, as well as Scott Van Beck, former Director of Houston a Challenge. Amy explored how families could navigate a system where school didn't exist through the help of learner advocates. She shared how she's already seen success with this and flexible learning opportunities through her work at ReSchool Colorado. We then heard from Scott, who outlined an idea where educators or community members could become learning designers who would meet with families to design a learning plan for students that would determine what a learner should learn, want to learn, and what they could learn either in a school setting or within their own community. In today's episode, part two, we'll hear from Nate McLennan, who's become somewhat of a regular on the Getting Smart podcast. He's the Vice President of Education and Innovation at Teton Science Schools. Nate and Tom discuss anywhere, anytime learning, the community as classroom, and the importance of guidance of advisory for learners. Nate McLennan, welcome to the Getting Smart podcast. Hey, thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. Love being on the show. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in uh, Holliston, Massachusetts, a suburb of Boston that has become more and more crowded uh, over the years, but wasn't as crowded when I was growing up. Small farm? Yeah, small farm was a hobby farm. My parents were were educators and uh, we had sheep and chickens and um, we had a lot of room to play and explore and um, build and make. And my parents made us... Uh, or invited us to really rehab a house, a very old house that was a rundown nursery when they bought it. Um, so we did a lot of breaking things and then putting them back together um, as kids. Sounds like that has something to do with why you do what you do today. Yeah, it definitely has informed this whole idea of you know, my life has been around place-based education. So how do you connect learning deeply into communities? Um, and how do you really increase relevance, engagements, and, and learning outcomes from that? And I think I think it was informed from... From where I grew up and, and how I grew up is that I had a lot of space to grow and learn outside of the school environment. And I did fine in school, but it was that outside of school environment where I probably did most of my real learning. So that informed how I think about place-based education now. So you, you recently wrote a paper about uh, what if school didn't exist? And so let, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, you, you, you go back to history and talk about how, how place, really before it got industrialized, how, how education really started in a place. Sure. As part of the schools out work that we did with Education Reimagined, which was a, a thought process of really thinking and saying what would happen if school didn't exist, um, it really resonated with me around place-based education because before school was formalized, all education um, was that all learning didn't happen. None of it happened with a school. And it was all relevant. It was all contextualized. It was all need to know and imperative for that young person to learn to become an adult who survives and thrives in the world. And so, so that concept of schools out was informed a bit by that, that older history of what learning was all about. And part of the preface of, of one of the blogs I wrote after was the difference between learning and school. And that learning is a 360-degree operation, 24 hours a day for all humans throughout their life. And school is a construct that we put a box around. And so part of this work was imagining what would happen if you took that box away 
learning would still happen and how would we manage it in a modern world to achieve the goals that, that we think are necessary for students to thrive in, in a modern world. So how, how could we reimagine the learning in community? Yeah. So reimagining learning in community, the way that, that we thought about it in the paper and then some subsequent conversations and blogs was imagining learner ecosystems around every individual student. And that would comprise of the places, the parks, the museums, the outdoor spaces, uh, the civic leadership, the people, uh, the organizations, the businesses that surround that learner. So you, you have a learner ecosystem. So that's part one. Part two is uh, a set of expected outcomes, competency pathway, um, where that's prescribed from or how that's prescribed is an interesting question. I think we settled on uh, some of it as a core set that maybe a region or a nation would ascribe to and some of it really um, locally dependent, depending on what the needs of that local place are. So we knew that was part two. Um, part three was uh, the ability to connect those people and those assets in the community with the learner and that they would have familiarity enough with the competency pathway so they, they would have uh, a commitment to the common good, a commitment to this idea that we're all um, educating and, and building the future generations. And then I would say that the fourth part was, what's the economy of this? So what's the currency of this model? And, and some of the thinking we did was around, do individuals who are supporting someone earning competency in a particular area, um, do they get paid? Do they get paid in learning credits? Can they then use those learning credits for their own learning to transfer to someone else? Who authorizes those credits? Should they be authorized? Um, can there be a rating system around those individuals or orgs giving those, those learning credits? And so there's those challenges of how do you document this learning while yet at the same time personal, keeping it personalized and designed around what's available in that person's learner ecosystem and take advantage of the place. Those are, it's a gnarly list of questions, right? They're, they're challenging <laughs> technically and they're challenging uh, politically. So do you, do you have thoughts on how and where we can test some of these ideas? Some of the, the things that we're thinking about, so, so certainly there are schools playing with how do you uh, accredit outside activities or learner experiences like LRNG, for example, or places like that. And all out-of-school activities are trying to figure out how do they how do they combine with districts? And, and there is some experimentation in granting credit for that. Um, I, I think that the place to start would be to find the five to 10 communities in the country that are really interested in doing this work together. So you need to have an active and engaged school board, some sort of uh, flexibility from the state within the existing system to do this, such as an innovation zone or something like that. And then a really engaged community that says, we want to be part of this educational journey. We want to be able to give credits or, or, or check off learning targets or, or help students achieve proficiency as part of the community and practice this at some small scale. And so that's where I think the next interesting test would be. I, we're, we focus a lot on rural in my work with Place Network Schools. And I think sometimes that a rural school community, a rural community would be really ripe for this because schools are already the center in some ways, of the communities, and how do we build those out as learning centers where community members can come and help um, do the work? Uh, the students can go out into the community and help support thriving community, uh, the thriving functioning of the community itself. So, pilots and whole community pilots. It, it does sound like um, 
uh, starting around the edges. So existing schools can sort of start around the edges. You, you do a lot of this at Teton Science Schools. Yep. Um, when and where you, you can. LRNG, you mentioned, that's a great example of uh, working outside the system and looking for ways to badge and support learning activity. It does sound like this has to be an, an opt-in activity for kids and families, right? Yeah, I think it has to be an opt-in. So you need a, the, the ecosystem has to be ready for it and the learner and the learner's family has to be eager for it and the school, the existing school, you know, our process was with it, if there's no school, but the stepping stone, the existing school would have to be amenable to it. Um, and, and, you know, and there's some similarities, I think, to sort of what, what homeschoolers do, right? I mean, homeschoolers that are not following a prescribed curriculum that they have decided to do. There are homeschooling parents that are putting together this ecosystem level work. They just have no formal structures around it. So, so there are models and there's homeschool collaboratives that do this. Right. Uh, there are um, learning centers that are starting to say, how do we gather folks together who want to learn together and then put them apart when they don't want to learn together. So, so it's that blending of informal and formal that um, we see as, probably uh, capitalizing on those people who are doing it in some form. So everything that you've talked about um, opens up a world of opportunity, right? Any, anywhere, anytime learning, um, community as classroom. Yeah. Uh, and as, as wonderful as that sounds, it, it does suggest that guidance, that good advice to help a learner decide what to do next uh, is more and more important. Yeah, so that's the fifth element. If I went through the first four elements, I should have added the fifth element, which is this idea of the learning coach. Um, and that learning coach wouldn't necessarily be responsible for uh, the instruction or working with that student in a way of helping them achieve a proficiency, but helps them along their pathway, makes connections for them, roots for them, um, uh, helps support them finding and, and get, getting access to things they might not normally get access to, which then begs the question to the the, the, the two big issues with this, which I think are one is around uh, equity and one's around scale. So, so I can imagine it with one individual student that's homeschooled that has a, a, a parent that has the time and assets to create this ecosystem around the kid. And that we, we see that. We know that can work. So with scale, though, you've asked those questions about scale. It's a challenge. Equity, uh, how do we ensure that everybody gets access to a great learning coach? Um, how do we make sure that those who have more privilege and assets don't just buy the best learning coaches and the best learning experiences, which then keeps them ahead, which then perpetuates the, the equity gap that we already see? And so, so that's a perplexing, I think, to me and the others who wrote this is we don't have an answer for that, except that we know that any work in this area has to be grounded in that idea that, that it must be an equitable solution. We can't perpetuate the current issues. And there's danger in this suggestion of no school, right? Yeah. Like there's danger in perpetuating the current issues of inequity. So. I, I agree. This is really perplexing. And I, I, I've often said that the guidance gap may be the most yeah. important gap that we face, bigger than the achievement gap and, and related to the opportunity gap. That the opportunity gap is because there's not an advisor, an advocate, the designer, the mentor that's connecting kids with opportunity, creating opportunity, uh, advocating for, uh, for, for opportunity, but, but to understand how to make sure that every learner has access to great guidance uh, is a real vexing question. 
Yeah. And it might be. And it also, it, it, you, I struggle with it in the rural spaces as well as when you don't have a city ecosystem to draw on millions of population. Yeah. So it may be that we need to use technology better to do this so that there is some assignment of, you know, that we have people whose jobs it is, is to be, and it would draw out of the current teacher pool. So I'm not suggesting that all the teachers that we currently have disappear. I think that their role just changes. Right. And so there was some fear when we talked about this, that what about teachers? What would they do? And yeah. We're going to still need people like that. And how do we get great teachers in front of more kids? Yep. And, and a learning coach might be a better role for that than a direct instruction, which we've, of course, tried yeah. right, with virtual schools and things like that. So it's def definitely the combination of, um, uh, of, of live assistance and tech assistance. Uh, we were in Cajon Valley School District in California last week and saw a great example of career education in elementary school where where they were video conferencing with, with community mentors. Mm -hmm. So every student in every grade uh, several times a year is connecting with industry experts on the topic that they're studying. So great, great example of don't, don't assume that every teacher can be an expert on every you know, job cluster uh, that you're gonna study, bring those people into the classroom. So right. thinking this, that helped me think broadly about this role of uh, guidance and advice that it, it can be uh, a, a teacher, a person at school, but it, it can also be mentors in the community and those we can use technology to help connect kids to those mentors. It can be a, a, a smart algorithm that helps a, a kid and a family understand which job clusters are going to become most important in their community. Right? So it feels like it's a mixture of high tech and, and low tech, high touch. Yeah, and I see the 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 as the, the great teachers do, I think, in the modern world, they step a little bit to the side and they really connect the learners with great learning experiences. And those learning experiences might be people, places, orgs, et cetera. And so I think great teachers are already especially those working in next generation schools with project-based learning or competency-based ed, et cetera, they're already doing this. They're stepping aside and changing their roles. And we know that. We know that working with schools, there are paradigm shifts that happen for teachers. And they have these aha moments of, oh, I don't have to be the keeper of all knowledge anymore. I just have to provide access and great support along the way for the students to get the things and to demonstrate proficiency on what they need to demonstrate proficiency on. It's interesting that we've, you know, we've relied so long on on a place called school and something called curriculum, which was boiled down to a set of textbooks that a board adopted and viewed that as the structure that we had to push every kid through. It, it strikes me that, um, you know, a week after uh, LRNG merged with SNHU, so you've got a, you know, a K-12 badging system merging with a, a college. So very interesting paradigm uh, that that if we squint hard, we could imagine a catalog of learning experiences that we could make available to a kids that are connected to a community mm -hmm. um, that open up sort of a, a pathway of, of opportunities that are both in and out of school. Um, and that that opportunity set really could help groups of, of young people sort of reimagine what their, especially what their secondary experience looks like right it could be a new framework but one that's uh has a lot more flexibility a lot more uh community-based learning a lot more learner interest built into it yeah it seems like uh the, the solution would be something akin to 
you, with your device, if you had a device, you'd be able to enter any zip code, and that zip code would have a connected series of things that were available to track and get proficiency in. Um, you need some sort of pathway that everyone was on, but as you moved around from community to community, or yeah. you were traveling, or you went to work, or whatever the case may be, you would then have a display of new opportunities that you were willing to check off and it would be an opportunity. And then there will always be the choose your own adventure one, right? Like that you could say, hey, suggest something. What do you see in our community that could be yeah. useful for your learning? And that if that changed as you moved across the landscape, it right. would be pretty interesting. No, that's a cool kind of an AR geo smart opportunity set, that, yeah, right? That says, yeah. here, here's your learning journey. And by the way, there's a museum right here. Wait, wait, there's like, a museum ding, here. Ding, you can satisfy this proficiency. Right. It's open now. And Check you have it two out. more hours to go right. and you'll get check off your life sciences, whatever. Right. And it just so happens there's two other learners that are just about ready to start their journey and you could join them. And Right. That's even better, right? right? You have that sort of that social construct that yeah. brings people. Because obviously... We're not talking about single learner ecosystems where these are overlapping Venn diagrams right. of all these learners in one place. So you can sort of imagine Pokemon Go meets yeah. LRNG <laughs> yeah, meets yeah, yeah. Play space and project-based learning. Right. There you go. Um, should we create that? Tonight? I think we should. should Let's we see. Let's get a napkin out fast. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it, it feels like these, this is a thought experiment that you just went yeah. through um, and, and the paper that you just wrote, but it feels like it's... Uh, it's such an interesting and formative time that we're living through where so many people are really begin to reimagine what things could, could be like for young people. Yeah, I, I think we're in a stars-aligned phase, and, and uh, I, I probably John Dewey might have said the same thing, but I doubt it. Um, and so I think the alignment of what the world's doing, so we know the world's changing fast, and it's a way more unpredictable than it was in the past, um, what students need to succeed in this world, the ability to pivot, be an entrepreneur, to create um, and adapt. And, uh, and then these technology solutions that are able to do the things that you and I just described. I always say that if you and I just describe it in a room here in Nashville, it's like we could probably find someone to build this for us. Right. Or someone's already building it. Somebody's, already, somebody's working on it already. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so, so I think we have these stars aligned. Um, and then you add on top of it... Uh, I think a generation of school leaders and teachers who are saying what we're doing now is not working as well as it can. It doesn't mean that there's not bright spots. There have been bright spots for 100 years. But what we're doing now doesn't solve the equity issue. It doesn't solve um, uh, giving everybody a fair chance um, and everybody equally ch are challenged in a way that's appropriate to them. So, so I think we are in the right place. And I'm excited to see the next uh, five to 10 years as it evolves. It was great to hear Nate talk about the differences between learning and school. We love how he explained that learning is 24 hours a day for an individual's entire life, where school is really a construct. Yeah, it's a great point because it allows us to think differently about how we structure learning, which could happen in school or really anywhere, since learning is ongoing. Nate expands more on this in his position paper, Schools Out, how a no-school society is one of many learner-centered possibilities. We'll link the paper in the show notes. Next, Tom speaks with IT consultant Oscar Brinson. In his paper, Schools Out, Why Embracing Technology Will Only Expand What's Possible, Oscar explores how education keeps up with the technological advances. He ponders the role AI and automation will play in the future of learning and work, and in the conversation with Tom, he expands on what he sees as technology's role, along with the role of advisory and guidance relationships. Given how important advisory relationships are, you know, with teachers, advisors, mentors, and how important 
social relationships are in terms of learning to work together, uh, collaborating. Uh, do, you, do you anticipate something that looks like school or community facilities where students and and uh, and adult mentors meet on a on a regular basis? Absolutely. I, I think At least the, some some kids. I think the connectivity will this ubiquitous connectivity is absolutely going to facilitate a lot of that. But it still needs there still needs to be the in person. Um, and I I'm not suggesting that you could do without that. You know, the educator in me says you can't do without that personal touch. Right. It's just impossible. The technologist in me says we're going to do that whether people right. like it or not. And it's we, sort of the the sci-fi equivalent of of the you know. What is the, the Star Trek quote? The uh, resistance is futile. And I don't mean that it's a bad thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But I think what's going to happen is there will be periods of inequity. Ultimately, we'll get to a place where there, there's a level playing field and it will be equitable. But I think there will be periods in the, in the same way that now if you provide a student a laptop and Internet access, what, what monumental advantage do they have over a student mm -hmm. that does not have a laptop and Internet access? And clearly, that's a balance. It's just way out. I don't think we can underestimate the importance of the custodial aspect of school uh, for a lot of parents that work, having a, a place to send junior sure. Sure. three, four, five days a week uh, is going to remain important as long as uh, parents are going to a place called work. Yeah, and I would, that, that's exactly the, that's the caveat. And I would look, and this, you might call this a cop out, but I would look further out, 100 years out, and start thinking about concepts about universal basic income, um, universal health care, the fact that automation and AI is going to, to take so many professions and so many jobs, and it won't just be blue-collar jobs. I mean, the, the biggest white-collar job out there right now, accounting, is quickly dwindling because of software, because of Quicken, <laughs> into it. Well, any really, any um, rules, application of rules, whether it's law, accounting, uh, to some extent, m medicine, any of the traditional professions where you learn a canon and apply that um, uh, routinely, we we can see those jobs going away pretty quickly. Yeah, and the predictions are looking at by 2030, another 800 million jobs worldwide will disappear, and that's 12 years away, 11 years away. But what's hard to harder to predict is how many jobs will be created. Right. right? And, then I, and then there is that argument. And initially, there have been actually, there's the argument that there, you've done away with some blue collar jobs, but you've actually increased white collar jobs, whether they be coding or programming or technologist support, any number of other. And I, that's true. In industrialized countries, I think you see the, the, the loss of blue collar and the gain of white collar jobs. That is absolutely happening. I don't think that's going to persist. I think ultimately, AI and automation will, will infiltrate those those careers that we didn't ever expect them to infiltrate. And I think teaching instruction is very much one of those. So, you know, the, the argument, the debate will go on forever about the pros and cons of that. Um, and I think we'll have to balance it through the decades, depending on how good, how sophisticated that AI is and how much we can expect it to do. But back to your example about sort of the, the babysitting role or the role of parents and sort of the daily, um, I think you're going to find, here's another example. Imagine an AI assistant that's ever present like data in the Star Trek Next Generation. Imagine that everyone had access 24-7 to an AI assistant like that. 
that can be a babysitter and a million other things. That AI, that sophistication could teach you, you know, I mean, it could change the, the landscape of education completely, but it also frees up um, that the labor that you're talking about. Sounds like the changes in learning and the changes in society are going to be significant enough that school might be a good place to host community conversations about what's coming down the pike. Yeah. Well, you mean the, the sort of the ability to adapt to change? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I, I will go back and, and reiterate what you said. I think community-dependent model is what seems to work best. When we brainstormed and prototyped this idea of schools out, increasingly we I think we're finding that it's it's easy to envision it in smaller community dependent environments. It's harder to imagine it scaling equitably. And one of our team members is the superintendent of a very large school district. And I wonder how he wrestles with this on a day-to-day -day basis because I work with a school of 20 students and I can actually implement the things that I want to do. And scale isn't really an issue. Equity isn't really an issue as long as the community support is there. Um, but I don't know how you scale it when you talk about school districts of thousands of students. Um, I would look to technology in the long run to address those issues right. of equity and scale. And that's, that's one of those are two of the things developers concentrate most on when they develop technology is scale. Can you scale it? Is it reliable? Is it equitable? So I think we'll conquer that. Yeah, I think equity, uh, we have to keep that in the forefront, certainly uh, domestically and especially internationally as uh, these new technologies are developed. Well, and you mentioned internationally. It may not be in the U.S. that these things happen first. Right. I, I think we often assume that's the case. Uh, I, I would say I, I think it will not be. I well, think you will find other countries, you know, crossing lines and, and, and challenging status quo long before we do. Yeah. There's, uh, we've, you know, we've already seen that with uh, mobile technology in Africa and sort of leapfrogging leapfrog copper infrastructure, and yeah. they don't have the gravity of institutions that uh, that we have. So clearly, when it when it comes to learning um, outside the traditional confines of what we call school, we're we're very likely to see that in other countries before the United States. Certainly, yeah, certainly. Yeah. So time to keep our eyes open. A big thanks to Education Reimagined for sponsoring the Schools Out podcast series. And thanks to Nate McLennan and Oscar Brinson for speaking with us today. Join us for our final episode on the Schools Out paper next week, as Tom and Tom Rooney, the superintendent of Lindsay Unified Public Schools, discuss the role of community in the future of learning. And don't forget to check out the position papers from each of the authors. We have them linked in the show notes, as well as in the blog for this episode and the last. And you know the drill. Don't forget to hit subscribe on the podcast and leave us a rating. And for more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Jessica and Caroline signing off.